Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view now are the exhibitions Beauty's Legacy, Gilded Age Portraits in America, The Armory Show at 100, Modern Art and Revolution, and Clarice Smith, Recollections of a Life in Art, which closes tomorrow. I hope you'll return to visit these exhibitions if you haven't already seen them. And don't miss our Bernard and Irene Schwartz classic film series on most Friday evenings. Just pick up a flyer outside the door. There's a stand there holding them and a poster with all the films. So I always ask, how many members do we have with us in the auditorium? We have lots of members. I see there's a few people who are not yet members. We invite you to join the family. Great benefits, free admission to our museum, and wonderful discounts on most of our programs and lots more. Just speak with our colleagues as you leave today. We'd love to have you join us. And at this point, I ask everyone, <clears throat> if you have a cell phone, an electronic device, a beeper, a mini iPad, whatever it may be, to please turn it off during the duration of our program. And just note that photogra photography is not permitted except for the house photographer or recording as well. So today's program, Wonder Women, Sex, Power, and the Quest for Perfection, follows our Friday evening film last night, The Red Shoes, which was a story about a talented young ballerina who is forced to choose between her career and her personal life. So we thought this would be a fitting conversation to have today. Um, there will, with, with the program, we will have, it will include an audience Q&A, and we ask the audience members to step up to standing mics in the aisles, and we, we ask you to do this so that the whole audience can hear you, the speakers can hear you, and... We're also podcast, we're recording this for a podcast that we post on our website, so we want the whole world to hear you too. Um, following the program, Deborah Spar will be doing a book signing outside in our Smith Gallery, our museum store is on the 77th Street side. We hope you'll stay for the book signing as well. The program is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent speakers, authors, and historians to the New York Historical. So let's give them a wonderful hand. I also want to recognize trustees with us this morning, Rick Reese and Lon Jacobs, and all the wonderful Chairman's Council members with us here this morning for all their great work and support as well. Let's give them all a hand. <clears throat> Thank you. We're thrilled to welcome Deborah Spar to the New York Historical Society. In her role as president of Barnard College, Ms. Spar has been a vocal proponent of women's education and leadership. Prior to her arrival at Barnard in 2008, Ms. Spar was the Spangler Family Professor at Harvard Business School. She also serves as a director of Goldman Sachs. 
She is the author of numerous books, including, most recently, Wonder Women, Sex, Power, and the Quest for Perfection, our program today. We are also delighted to welcome our moderator for this morning, Dr. Louise Mirror. Um, you know, disclaimer, she's my boss. <laughs> Dr. Mirror has been the president and CEO of the New York Historical Society since 2004. And under her direction, and I, I have to say great leadership, the society completed a major renovation for our landmark building and launched a series of groundbreaking exhibitions. Um, she's behind everything we do here, our programs, um, all the wonderful initiatives. Um, we thank you, Louise. Let's give Louise a hand. Yeah. Prior to joining the New York Historical Society, Dr. Mirror was CUNY Executive Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs. She has won numerous awards for her work and has been recognized as one of New York's 50 most influential women. So now, please welcome, join me in welcoming Deborah Spar and Louise Mirror. Thank you. So uh, I want to add my own um, words of welcome to, to Dale's and thank all of you for joining us, uh, not so early, but a bit early on a Saturday morning. It's a pleasure to see you. And of course, um, I'd like to thank President Spar for taking time out of her very busy schedule to join us here. This morning's program is uh, not only a terrific adjunct to the Red Shoes or a follow-up to the Red Shoes, but... Also, a propitious moment to talk about a, um, a great new suite of galleries that we are planning for our fourth floor, which will focus on the history of women. And one of them is, of course, Zora Neale Hurston, who was the first black graduate of Barnard in, I think, 1928. So, um, so this, is, um, this is a very, very good moment to have this conversation. Um, I'd like to just begin the session by reading what has by now become a quite legendary opening paragraph to uh, President Spar's book, Wonder Women, Sex, Power, and the Quest for Perfection. Um, let me just, just read this out loud and then uh, ask a couple of questions to Deborah. I'm pretty sure I remember the moment I knew I was having it all. It was December 1992 in the women's bathroom at LaGuardia Airport. I had just an hour between flights, and so I had rushed straight for the stalls, cramming my bags against the door and pulling off my blouse. There I perched on the less-than-inviting seat, took out a little medulla, plump, pump in style, and began feverishly to pump. From the stall next to me, I heard a gasp of surprise and hasty flush. Come on, I scolded silently. This is New York. A lady in the bathroom with a breast pump is nothing. After several long minutes of whirring and pressing, fumbling and swearing, I collected my paltry three ounces, pulled the pump and myself back together, and dragged the whole lot out to the sink area. There, before two confused Asian travelers and the girl from Cinnabon, I tossed the milk I'd never used down the drain and tried again to reconfigure my five weeks postpartum belly into something that vaguely resembled a business suit. And that's when I realized, Riley, 
ironically, totally deprived of sleep, that I really was having it all. This has to be one of the great, greatest opening paragraphs of all time. So um, I know that there are a number of young women in the audience this morning, and um, I, have to, I have to wonder, this is a, a pretty tough way to begin your story. Um, so I, I want to ask you, why do you get off to such, it's a wonderful beginning, but why do you get off to such a tough start? And, um, and what messages uh, might it hold, might your story at the start hold for, for young women today? Well, thank you for reading that, uh, despite the sort of you know, embarrassment it causes me. <laughs> um, but but uh, there, was, there was an interesting sort of story to the story that um, when I started sharing drafts of the book with, with my friends, every single male friend of mine who read the draft said, you cannot begin the book with this story. It's disgusting. I don't want to think about it. I don't know you that way. And every single female who read the draft said, this is so the right way to start. And, and what I found so interesting in that is that at some level it gets to the heart of the book and I think in many ways the heart of the dilemma that women are facing, which is that the image we have of, and I hate this phrase, but the woman having it all, the woman who has a family and a career and great clothes and everything, is a very glamorous image. And yet the reality of having all those things is being in the ladies' restroom at LaGuardia Airport. And, and I really did feel that what I wanted to do in the book was to put these less-than-perfect images out there, not because they're horrible images, but because they're uncomfortable images, but they're real. And there's something about breast pump. I mean, nobody wants to talk about it because it's gross. But, but it, it actually captures, I think, in some ways, the most vulnerable moment of a working, woman, a working mother's life. Because if you are a woman who has a child and goes back to work, you're going to have a moment like that. And it is those moments that impress upon you in the most intimate way how hard it is because you're giving something up on both ends of the spectrum. You're not with your baby when you want to be, and you're not fully in the workforce for reasons that are really quite biological. And, and it's been interesting to me since the book's come out that every woman I run into says, I've got to tell you my pumping story, <laughs> including three national senators. So it, you know, it truly is the thing that every working mother has dealt with. Well, um, you know, we'll get a little bit later on to um, um, onto some of the more optimistic moments, and there are very many of them in, in the book. And, uh, and certainly, we have a very positive example right here. So tough vignette, though it is, um, it obviously is not, not the beginning and the end of the story as well. Um, so here we are in History Museum. So let's talk a little bit um, about history. Um, I'll, I'll begin with much more recent, or somewhat more recent history, uh, my own. Um, Deborah and I spoke on the phone a few days ago, and I said that I read the book and was quite stunned to find that, um, that there were so many differences between her story and my story. And uh, though I'd, I'd like to close up the 10-year gap between our ages, there is a 10-year gap between our ages. Um, Deborah's reply was that, well, history moved very quickly in those 10 years. So let me say a few things um, about my own upbringing. I uh, had an extremely well-educated mother. She wanted the same for me, but her purposes in my education were, to put it bluntly, to make me a better wife. Um, I had to play the violin. I had to play it quite well. 
so that I could delight guests at a dinner party or have a nice hobby when my children grew up and uh, I had some free time on my hands. Your mother, on the other hand, um, told you you could be whatever you wanted to be. So how do you account for history moving, as you said, so quickly in those 10 years? Well, I have to begin with a personal disclaimer. My mother is in the audience. <laughs> She's never been in the audience before. So I'm, you know, I'm a little nervous about this. You know, put me in front of 1,000 people, I'm good. Put my mom in the audience, I get a little nervous. But putting that aside, um, history did move very, very quickly in the 1960s. And you know, in retrospect, I think the, the generations were narrower in those moments than they are now. So that there really are major historical differences between women who were born in 1953, 63, and 73. And so I was born in 63, and if you just you know, appropriately focus, focus on the history here, between the time I was born and the time I became even vaguely politically conscious, so call it you know, between 63 and 73, just think for a moment of what happened. A Cuban Missile Crisis came and went, Martin Luther King was assassinated. The civil rights movement uh, came into existence and then sort of had, had peaked by the time I became politically active. The Vietnam War came and went so that unlike women of your age, women of my age, we didn't have friends who fought in Vietnam. Most of us didn't have brothers who fought in Vietnam. We were, we were just too young. The war ended when I was 10. Roe v. Wade was passed so that by the time women of my generation became sexually active, we had legal access to contraception. We had legal access to abortion. So it was a fundamentally different environment to grow up in as a teenager. And we had mothers, now again, our mothers might have been you know, different ages, but for the most part, women who, came of, you know, who were born in the 60s had mothers who were, were sort of, as I call them, the good girls of the Eisenhower years. But then they saw the world changing, and they wanted fundamentally different things for their daughters. They wanted their daughters to be astronauts and Supreme Court justices and to save the world because all of those things which had never been possible before were suddenly not only possible, but they were permeating the environment. So I think girls of my era generally, especially if we were lucky enough to be white and upper middle class and well-educated and you know, we happen to be, as in my case, straight, we, we just heard from our, not only our mothers, but our teachers our school principals, our ballet instructors, not that we should learn the violin to please men anymore, but that we should claim our own independence. And so I think it's not surprising that as girls of my era did go on to college, first of all, all of the Ivy League was co-ed, except Columbia, I'll just note for the record, which was a little <laughs> slower off the mark. Um, there, there really was nothing, it appeared, that we couldn't do. And it was very, very different from, again, just women 10 years older than us who really were much more of the pioneers. That is, um, I mean, that's just so interesting to me because uh, for sure, and I, I spoke to um, some of my friends in the audience just before the program began who are about my age and their experience is more or less the same as my own. So um, I don't want to put too fine a point on, on it with your mother in the audience uh, this morning, <laughs> but um, what was the, I have to ask, what was the message about uh, um, being a, a wife and a mother. Was there a message? Well, I think, and again, this is where, you know, the generational piece I find so intriguing. We were the first generation to believe that we could be both working women and mothers. And, and I'll come back in a moment and say how I think things have changed for girls who are growing up now. But as I describe in the book, 
one of the central images of my childhood, and, and I find this was true for many women of my age, was the Charlie Perfume commercial. Okay, so how many people in the audience remember the Charlie Perfume commercial? Right? It was a fabulous commercial. The perfume was horrible, but the commercial <laughs> was awesome. And it, it captured what I think not just my mother, but all of society kind of thought without really thinking about it would be true, which is that women would grow up and become these professional career women. And the model, first, which first of all was gorgeous, was Shelley Hack, but the model, the, the commercial showed her striding into the workforce with like a briefcase in one hand and a baby in the other. And I just thought, great, I'll take one of those. And, you know, and, and then in some of when they moved to the television ads, at the end of the day where somehow the child goes somewhere, we never know. But we don't, like she's not worried about subsidized daycare. You know, like the kid is just going to be taken care of and the briefcase is going to be taken care of and she's not stressed out about her boss or the PowerPoint presentation she's going to give. She's just striding into the future and then she's got Ray Charles crooning and, and squirting her with perfume. And, you know, it just looked not only like this fabulous life, but it just seemed possible. And, you know, and, and I, I, I wound up doing more cultural history in the book than I had intended to, but if you look at the media from that era, um, the media about feminism was very harsh. The mainstream media did not like feminists and painted the feminists untruthfully, but very powerfully as sort of angry and man-hating and bra-burning, none of which they've reminded me was true, but that's what the media was presenting. But the Charlie images were very, very powerful. You were not getting a lot of mainstream media coverage saying, hmm, is it really possible for women to have it all? The, ma- the mainstream media coverage was all about, you know, you go, girl. And I think a whole generation of us just went. And it was only later that we said, hmm, gee, <laughs> that, you know, then we're in, the, we're in the, you know, the restroom at LaGuardia saying, hmm, this wasn't really what I thought. Um, and then, and we can come to this more later if people want, but I think the message that young girls are getting today is, on the one hand, harder, but also more realistic, because the young women, the students I'm with all the time, the 18 to 22-year-olds, they now have mothers who were the Charlie generation. So they have watched their mothers try to juggle, whereas women of my generation, almost by definition, our mothers didn't have the opportunities to be juggling. So we got very different messages. You know, um, I want to go back a little bit further in history, but um, first I want to say that uh, thinking about my, my story and your story um, made me think, gee, you know, things got, went backward rather than forward. And, you know, honestly, there were people burning bras. They were probably a little bit older than I was, but... Um, I, I think that my generation very much evolved uh, um, out of a very, you know, kind of strident is probably a sexist word to use at this um, moment, but it was a, a rather aggressive kind of feminism. So um, when I read, for example, your recounting of a letter of recommendation that you received from a male professor saying, Deborah is the best woman I've ever taught. Um, and you were nonplussed by the comment. In fact, you just found it highly positive. Um, I have to say, I, I had a lot of those let- letters of recommendation as well, and um, they made me screech. I mean, obviously not in front of the professor who had, had written the letter, but um, to my female friends, and uh, we screeched all the time about comments like that that we, we perceived as diminishing and... Um, and really quite uh, loathsome. 
How, how could it happen that my generation of women were so conscious of um, you know, what we called all the time sexism, and you were less so? Um, you know, it's a really good question. And, and um, you know, I have to be careful not to speak for my entire generation, because I think there probably were women, certainly were women my age, who would have you know, found that letter. I found it troubling, um, but also you know, kind of positive. It was, you know, it was a strong letter. But it was a weird letter. Um, but but I, I think, again, it's um, particularly as someone who's, who's a mother of, 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 of teenagers, the, the, the world or the, the environment you experience as a teenager really shapes you in very, very powerful ways. And particularly if you go back a couple of decades, if we can remember before the internet, um, things that happened when you were still a young child, they're always ancient history to you. You know, the things that happened before you're 12 or 13, they're ancient history, even if you were alive during them. I mean, just try this experiment. Anyone who has teenage kids, ask them what they think about the internet. They look at you like you're an idiot, right? Because they've never known the world without the internet. It's like asking, you know, what do you think about the air? It's just there. They can't imagine a world without some physical object attached to your hand that contains all your information. You know, when women, when you were growing up, your generation, when you were teenagers, feminism was happening. Your friends were involved in it. Your teachers were probably involved in it. Your parents weren't. So it was a very exciting movement to be part of. Again, just those 10 years, you know, I was, in 1975, I was 12. Feminism had sort of peaked by that point. It had gone into much more um, sort of slivered communities. Um, and so when you think, when you thought about feminism from the perspective of even a you know, relatively intelligent 12-year-old girl, it just wasn't exciting anymore. Those struggles felt like, first of all, they were old people's struggles, because if you're 12, any, anyone older than 20 is old. Um, and and more, more profoundly, it looked like they had been won, right? We had birth control. We had abortion. We had the Ivy League. We had Title IX. So, and we see this now. If you look at donations to organizations like Planned Parenthood, they are much more heavily um, uh, given, uh, donated to by older women. Younger women don't give to Planned Parenthood, not because they don't support reproductive rights. They just don't think about them. Sadly, that's starting to change. Um, but up until really two years ago, younger women didn't give to Planned Parenthood because they didn't see it as part of their struggle. And again, I think it's really just in the difference between you and me um, that those 10 years are their, are their narrowest. Well, then let's uh, go back a little bit further in history and see, um, see whether the, the, uh, the differences are, well, surely they are even more exaggerated. So let me just um, move my cup there so I don't bang anything and read a little bit again from, uh, from your wonderful book. To be sure, you write, feminism itself was hardly a new phenomenon. Indeed, as Estelle B. Friedman describes in No Turning Back, A History of Feminism, the global movement for women's rights had a long and complicated past, including the liberal struggle for women's suffrage launched in the mid-19th century, socialist-inspired campaigns to protect working girls and women in the early 20th century, and the decades-long battle led by crusaders such as Margaret Sanger and Emma Goldman to provide women with access to contraception. But the feminism of the 1960s was distinct. This was a feminism that promoted not the political rights of women or the legal status of women, but rather the very identity of women. 
So um, maybe you can talk a little bit about what was different between the understanding of the very identity of women of the suffragists, for example, and the, um, I'll still call them bra burners of the 1960s. <laughs> Although several of the key women from that era have assured me they didn't burn bras. They, they tossed them into a freedom <laughs> trash can, but they never actually burned them. Just a historical footnote that, you know, being But you don't get here, the alliteration. I know, I know. Burning, it's nice. <laughs> oh, but I, I want to make one, one little point, and my, my friend Tony Coffey may have actually been in the room when this happened. We had an interesting event at Barnard some years ago um, where um, a woman who was part of the, the sort of core feminist generation got up and she said, how come young women don't want to associate with feminism anymore? How come young women don't want to use the word feminist? It's a very good question. But another woman in the room answered it by saying, how come none of us use the word suffragette? Which I always thought was a very, very sort of profound lens. And I think it speaks to the point that even though feminism is a direct descendant of the women's suffragette movement, causes evolve. And, and I see you know, many young women today who do call themselves feminists, but more women, young women who don't call themselves feminists, but they attach themselves to causes like girls' code, or women's leadership, or empowerment. They are the inheritors of feminism, but the words have changed. And, and, I, and I think that's something that needs to be pointed out, and it's fine. Or at least it's fine with me. We can use different words, and, and that's okay. I don't think we should get too hung up on, on, uh, on burnishing individual words. But what I do think happened in the 1960s that was, that was so powerful was first of all, feminism was very much part of, or I would argue it was part of, the civil rights movement more broadly. You know, it wasn't just about women's rights. It was about fighting for collective good. It was fighting for civil rights, political rights, personal rights for fully half of humanity. And that, it was a, in many ways, it was a broader struggle than uh, suffragettism had been because, of course, suff you know, the suffragette movement was largely about voting rights, and they won. And so feminism in the 60s took a broader and, I would argue, more inclusive form because it really was part of the, um, the civil rights movement. The other thing that happened to feminism in the 1960s, and some of this was um, despite what the feminists themselves were, were advocating, was that it did become more personal. And as I argue in the book, I think my generation made a mistake by privatizing feminism, by taking this collective struggle and turning it more on, in, in on itself. But there was that element of, of 1960s feminism, perhaps because it hinged so much or so tightly on reproductive rights and the use of the word choice. You know, choice initially was really all about reproductive, you know, ch choosing control one's own, re one's own body. But, but choice is a complicated word. And I think over time it sort of morphed into, into what we see now, which is I want the ability to choose all aspects of my personal life. You know, my career, my spouse, my religion, my sexuality, when I bear children. And it became a much more personal and an inwardly focused feminism. And that wasn't what most of the core feminist advocates were fighting for, but that's what I believe occurred as feminism evolved, you know, from the 1960s into the 1980s. And, and again, just because we're in, we're in a place that, that, that talks a lot and thinks a lot about history, I think the, the transformation of feminism lines up with much of the transformation that we saw more broadly across society. Um, as somebody else wrote in a different context, uh, talking about what happened to Woodstock, because Woodstock disappeared very quickly. 
not just the concert, but you know, what it stood for, whereas he wrote, um, free love became free markets. And if you think about it, you know, the number of years between Woodstock and Ronald Reagan is very small. But, but society underwent a massive transformation in roughly 12 years. Well, that's so interesting, um, what you said. I mean, I, I know you do write in the book about um, feminism of the 60s having evolved either out of or, or along with or as a part of the civil rights movement. Now, thinking, as I say earlier, about our um, own focus on women's history, you know, that women's suffragist movement evolved out of the abolitionist movement. So um, I, I haven't thought about it enough to have any conclusions myself. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm just thinking about it right now. Maybe, maybe you've thought of, um, of how linked uh, movements about individual sense of identity might be with other much more broader social movements. I'm just wondering what's, what's on the books for us now. Well, it, you know, I, I, my crystal ball doesn't work very well. But, um, but in general, I, th- you know, I think you're exactly right. If you go from you know, the abolition movement, perhaps the temperance movement, which you know, sort of grew to some extent out of that, suffragette movement, uh, civil rights movement, feminism, d- generations get skipped, it appears. Because, again, if, if I'm right in saying that very few children are going to adopt their parents' causes, it sort of becomes the grandchildren of the movement that, that reinvest in that movement and redefine it. Um, and, you know, the, uh, to touch briefly on what I said a moment ago, you know, my fear is that, to some extent, the, the generation that's coming of age now may have to fight again for reproductive rights. They certainly are in, in portions of the country right now. Um, but I think, I think this generation um, is probably going to be more involved with, in this country, it's very different elsewhere, with some of the, the incredible civil rights issues that are going to keep emerging out of our technological revolution. You know? So we bequeathed the internet to them, and, and they are now discovering some of the problems around it, the privacy issues, uh, the data issues, the, you know, the personal issues. Um, that were bequeathed by that technology. We also sadly bequeathed them an economy that seems to be going steadily down or is stagnating. So, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be, the, you know, our kids, my students are inheriting a very, very different economy um, than their parents or their grandparents did. And, and that's already starting to shape them in sometimes, I think, quite positive ways because we're not seeing, you know, the rush to certain careers that we saw 10 years ago. I think it's actually a very thoughtful generation. Um, and they're, you know, at, at some level, they're saying, "Gee, what do we do? We've, you know, our parents poisoned the planet. Um, they killed the economy, and they gave us these fancy technologies that, you know, sort of obsess us, but maybe destroying our lives." And they're, you know, they're sort of <laughs> trying to figure out, you know, whether going back to the land is necessarily the uh, the best solution here. Depressing, but uh... no, sorry. <laughs> but they're thinking hard about these things. <laughs> My kids aren't uh, <laughs> accusing me of any of those things. But um, let's, um, let's uh, not um, abandon history entirely, but uh, let's talk about toys a little bit. So, um, so toys of the past, uh, little girls played with tea sets, as uh, you pointed out. Um, they played with tea sets because, uh, because that was kind of practice for the sorts of things that they would be doing for real when they grew up. Um, you talk about, and I'm going to read again from the book because it's a marvelous insight into, uh, into the difference between toys of um, one generation and toys of another. You talk about Barbie dolls quite a lot. Um, I was actually on the cusp of the Barbie generation. I hadn't meant to say this, but now I have to. Your parents are in the audience, mine are not, but 
I wasn't permitted to have a Barbie doll because it was too, uh, her figure was too realistic, and my father thought it was inappropriate for a young girl to have a doll that um, was so real. Um, She's actually not real. She would fall over if she were real. Yeah. She may be, she may be aspirational, um, but well, she's not real. Um, I don't know why he didn't want me to be just like that. But yeah. I think she was a probably good, a good thing. Good role model. He he thought she was pornographic, and actually I didn't really know she was pornographic. Um, I, I learned a lot in her book, and that's really um, he was quite right. I'll have to tell him that. Um, <laughs> So uh, I'm just going to read what you have to say about a particular uh, Barbie doll, one I uh, never encountered way past my generation, astronaut Barbie. So here we go. Like all Barbie dolls, of course, she, meaning astronaut Barbie, suffers from impossible proportions. Blown up to real size, she would boast an 18-inch waist and a 36-something size bust. One shudders to consider the effects of zero gravity. If NASA accepted dolls, she would, have to be earned, she would have to have earned, at a minimum, an advanced degree in science or engineering. She would be working roughly 10 to 12 hours a day with occasional stints of 16 days aboard some exciting mission, like the International Space Shuttle. As of 2011, the total number of women who had ever flown for NASA stood at 54. It's not clear how many of them had families or children, but none, presumably, had Barbie's physical attributes, in addition to their own intellectual ones. Because they can't. She's a fantasy, and they're real. Tell us a little bit more about why you are so fascinated with Barbie and uh, um, what, you think, uh, what you think the difference is between tea sets and Barbie dolls. OK. So yeah, I do have a minor fascination with Barbie. Um, which I didn't really have as a kid. I had Barbie doll, but wasn't particularly. My parents can confirm or deny this, but I don't remember being particularly interested in Barbie as, as, a, as a child. But I, I became interested in Barbie actually when I was a business school professor. Not an obvious thing. Um, Barbie is the most successful toy of all time. Every toy company in the world ha- tries to create the next Barbie, and nothing has succeeded. There have been these, these little blips the Cabbage Patch dolls, the Bratz, which are like Barbie but more obnoxious. Um, but, but nothing has ever been as successful as Barbie, which raises just the obvious question. You know, as I say in the book, what is it about that doll? And there is something about her physical appearance that is entrancing. You know, men notice Barbie dolls, and women, girls want to play with them, and women want to play with them. I mean, there's a whole eBay economy um, around Barbie dolls. I, um, I did discover, and I wasn't looking for it, but a uh, Harley Davidson Barbie in the original packaging for a thousand bucks. I mean, it's a toy. And yet, if you go, I'm, I'm sure many people in this, in this room have, you know, have traveled throughout the developing world. Everywhere you go, in Africa, in India, in China, there are faux Barbies on the, the corner kiosks. And what I find so intriguing is you can be in Ghana you can be in Guangzhou, and the faux Barbies are white. You know, so they've been made for the local economy, but they, are not, they do not reflect the ethnicity of the local economy. So there's something about the physicality of Barbie um, that people are attracted to. And uh, there's actually a wonderful bo- book by M.G. Lord that just looks at Barbie and, and why, in fact, she, she, um, she, she has this attraction. 
But clearly, what we're attracted to is something that is not real. I mean, it is aspirational in sort of the grossest use of, of, that, of that word. But what happened to the Barbies of, of my era, I think, actually encapsulate what happened to the girls of my era. So it was bad enough that Barbie dolls were just impossibly good-looking. But then when they became impossibly good-looking and running NASA missions, they set a standard. I mean, it's just absurd. And, you know, and it's very easy to laugh at because... You know, you look at astronaut Barbie and you say, okay, this is, it's goofy. But little girls are growing up with these. And somehow they're getting implanted in their brains that, okay, maybe I'm, I'm not going to be quite astronaut Barbie, but I'll be close. I'll be Supreme Court Justice Barbie. Um, and and if you, I, as part of the strange research for this book, I spent an absurd amount of time in the giant Toys R Us um, down in Times Square with, with a couple of six-year-olds that I dragged along as research subjects violating my college's institutional research um, practices, um, but be that as it may. And, you know, you take any little girl into that store, and she just makes a beeline for the Barbies. And you kind of can't drag her away. Meanwhile, if you look at the boys' toys, they're about doing things. They're about building things and, and mastering things and learning concepts. And so I worry that at a very young age, and, you know, and, and certainly parents try to fight against it. They st- take the dolls away. They... You know, give, give the girls trucks instead, and then most girls find a Barbie and they put the Barbie in the truck. Um, but, <laughs> there, you know, there is some, she has some attraction, and it's very easy to beat up on the toy companies for sort of imposing, sorry, imposing her on young girls, but there's a, there's a demand that is meeting that supply. And, and I think it's useful just to kind of put that out there and, um, and to think about it, because these are the images that our kids are not only playing with, but responding to at, at very young very young ages. Were we better off with tea sets? No, we weren't better off with tea sets. Um, but we're better off with, with the diversity of toys. Um, you know, tea sets, you know, interestingly, tea sets, baby dolls, were, were, as you said, were entirely about teaching girls to be mothers, teaching girls to be housewives. Um, the good news is we've, we've moved beyond that. Um, but, but I worry, and I no longer have, have little kids, but just what I see among little kids, and again, in too much research in toy stores, we are bombarding girls now with a plethora of aspirations. So they still get tea sets and play with tea sets or their, you know, Cuisinart sets or whatever the cappuccino sets, the modern, the modern equivalent is. But, you know, we're now saying to young girls, you know, play with the engineering toys, you know, build your own, build your own castles and then put the princess in them. So I think what, what I, and I, I get them when they're 18, I think the sad news about girls today is that they're growing up with even more expectations than girls my era had. Because girls today are sort of being told, you still should look like Barbie, because that has not gone away. But you should also be an engineer and, and build the Lego things. And you should be on the traveling soccer team by the time you're four. And don't you want to be a veterinarian when you grow up? Um, and do gymnastics on the side. So it's, you know, I, I, and I get them when they're 18, and they're wonderful girls, but they're exhausted because the amount of expectations that have been bundled into them is just overwhelming. And boys still have a different environment around them. And it's not that there's not expectations on, on young men. They have that as well. But they're not getting quite as many. Their looks aren't as important. Their social skills aren't as important. Their table manners aren't as important. Um, it's kind of, you know, grades and sports, but it's fewer, fewer kinds of expectations that we put on them. So that leads me to ask the question of how far we've come. And um, you have some statistics. Um, I'm going to read some of them out. 
a few dirty secrets, you call them. Female job applicants with children are 44% less likely to be hired for a job than are childless women with similar qualifications. Fathers, by contrast, are 19% more likely to be hired than are uh, comparably qualified men without children. A recent Harvard Business School study found that only 38% of the school's female graduates remain in the workplace. Harvard Business School women also have fewer children than their male counterparts, 1.8 to 2.2, and are less likely to be married. During the economic downturn of 2008-2009, 19% of senior-level women lost their jobs, compared with only 6% of senior-level men. What do you think? How far have we come? uh, The data are terrible. And um, they're not getting better. I mean, sorry to be quite so depressing. We'll find something optimistic to end on. But um, the good news, for what it's worth, is that the pipeline is very, very strong and healthy. So girls, despite what I was just saying about toys, girls dominate boys at high school. Girls are doing better on the SATs. They're the high school edit, new, you know, newspaper editors. They're the valedictorians to the point where, and, and this, is, this is true, boys have become affirmative action candidates at, in college applications, which is good news for any of you who have 16 and 17-year-old boys because colleges, other than Barnard, try to maintain the gender balance. It's actually easier for boys to get into college than for girls um, because the girls are doing so much better in high school. Um, there are more women in college than there are men. Um, 60% of all college students in this country right now are female. So the pipeline is more female at the college level. Even when you get into the graduate schools, women are more than 50% of med school. They are roughly 50% in law school. It varies depending on the economy. Business schools are a little bit lighter, but even business schools are about 42 43% female, except Harvard Business School, which is a little bit further off the curve, but working, working to fix that. Um, but... The higher you go in any sector, in any organization, the fewer women there are. And again, if we just look at the history here, you can no longer blame the pipeline because women of my age have been in that pipeline for 40 years now, 30, 40 years. So what is happening is that the women are falling off. Everybody knows this. They're falling off the pyramid, falling out of the pipeline, whatever metaphor you want to use, so that when you look at the top levels of any sector in this country, women get stuck at between 15 to 20% of the power seats. And this was one of the most frightening and and shocking pieces of research that that I found in this book. I thought there would be variation, that you would find 38% women in some sectors and 12% in others. It's between 15 and 20% in every single sector, except engineering where it's worse. But um, 15% of uh, law firm partners in this city are female. Um, 15.2% of Fortune 500 board members. I call it the 16% ghetto because it is so consistent. And it's sort of horrifying. And when you put in, and I won't repeat the data, but just you know, the, the, sort of the flavor of that data, women leave the workforce when they have children. And that, again, is sort of why I, I start this book with, 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 the, with the, the breast pumping incident because What's happening to women now, which is different than what was happening 40 years ago, is not that women are being actively discriminated against in the workplace, although there's some of that. More of what's happening is that women's lives remain more complicated than men's. And once kids enter the picture, women's career paths start to diverge from men's. 
in very interesting, but at some level, you know, straightforward ways. Women do more of the childcare. Women do more of the housework, the homework. And it's that juggling that is forcing them out of the workforce. So should we be teaching boys something different from what we're teaching them now? Would that help? That would help. I don't, I don't, I don't think this is a, an issue that has any single solution. Um, you know, I don't think it's just a matter of women leaning in more, although that's a good thing. I don't think it's just a matter of corporations having better daycare policies, although that would help. We have to look societally. Um, first of all, and I think this is the most important, and maybe this is, is the historian in me talking, we have to realize that we have undergone a revolution. And it was never going to be as easy as the Charlie commercial portrayed it as. If you think about this in the broadest historical terms, we as a human race had a division of labor for thousands and thousands of years that worked. It wasn't fair. Women got the bad part of it, but it worked. The man provided for the family, the woman created the family and cared for them. Then in a very short period of time, we turned that model on its head. And we said, you know what? One half of this equation, the female half, is now going to go out and provide for the family as well. We never came up with the other half of that, that clause, though. And therefore, who will take care of the family? We just never did that. And I think, you know, again, in the early, in the early years, the Charlie years, we just kind of thought, well, it'll happen. And it was sort of my generation that, that stumbled onto the reality that, no, it's not just going to happen. Um, and now I think we have to come up with, with the array of possible solutions. The, the one I would like the most, which I also think is the least practical, is why don't we work fewer hours? And there, <laughs> there's, a, there's a wonderful new study out of um, Norway, which does all of these things better than we do. Um, and they just, Norway has these fabulous mandatory paternity policies, you know, very good and inclusive childcare leaves. But the Norwegian sociologist who did the study said the most important thing and why Norwegian families tend to get, have a better balance and division of labor is they work fewer hours. Most Norwegians, even if they're in fast-paced, high-powered jobs, the average work week is about 35 hours. 30, if both parents are working 35 hours, you can do it. If both parents are working 60 hours, you can't. It's the math. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how perfect your children are. You, know, you can't do it if you've got two investment bankers in the family. And, and one of the most is sort of interesting things I've, I've uh, stumbled upon recently is there's an increasing number of same-sex couples who are discovering the same thing. It's not necessarily the gender divide, but if you have two women who are married and they're both working at Goldman Sachs, once they have kids, one of them has to pull back. You know, so it's not even so much the gender, it's the math. Um, so we've got to find ways of reducing the work we do, or more realistically, because I don't think that first part is going to happen in this country. Um, and this is, I, I get yelled at for saying this, but I think it's important to say, people, you know, couples um, have to think about how they are going to rejigger their work patterns. So once kids come, first of all, they may decide they don't want kids, that they both really love working 60 or 70 hours a week, and they're not going to have children. And there are, there, are, there, are, there are people out there for whom I think that is a very legitimate choice, who love what they do, they're passionate about what they do, they're writers or they're investment bank, whatever they do, that's the most important thing in their lives. And then I think we societally should remove the pressure on them to have children. I think we still have the T-set mentality that good women are mothers. We need, we need to move away from that. 
for people who do want to have children, you know, maybe it's the man who moves back from 70 hours a week to 35 hours a week or 20 hours a week. And Jody Cantor wrote a very nice piece on this in the New York Times, and she had a tough time doing the research. There are increasing numbers of men who are doing the bulk of the childcare. They don't want to talk about it, though. And their wives don't want to talk about it. Um, and this is, this is a really important stigma that I think we have to mention. I, I gave a talk at one of the investment banks recently, and at the end of the talk, somebody pulled me aside and, and said, you didn't ask the single most important question. You should have gone around the room and asked how many of these women had stay-at-home husbands because it was every single one. She knew all the women. And not a woman in that room has a, a working husband. So, but no, no woman I know who's in that situation brags about her stay-at-home husband. And we need to do that. We need to, we need to legitimize that choice. And we need to start legitimizing it for, for young boys, young men, to, you know, we don't have to beat it into them, but just let them, you know, be aware that there are different options. The other, and the, the last piece I'll mention, which, um, which I also think is something Americans do a very bad job at, we need to rediscover our extended families. Americans are much more transient as a society than most other societies. If you look at a place like India, which on the one hand is horrific for women around issues of class issues and, and certainly rape, but upper-class Indian women, they live with their mothers and their mothers-in-law. And for you know, all of the you know, complications that may bring, it solves the childcare issue. And a grandparents in India get childcare leaves. Because the assumption is when the baby is born, the grandparents are going to be doing a fair amount of the workload. In China, in Asian cultures generally, the idea is that the grandmother comes back in and takes care of childcare. Now, that's not going to be a solution for everyone. But I think in the US, what we tend to do is when we get married and have kids, we move away from our extended families, which is exactly the moment when we should be moving closer to our extended families. And again, that's what in other countries, even in Canada, you see much less movement, and that tends to make the childcare um, easier. Well, I was going to ask why the U.S. wasn't leading the way, um, but I think I think we have a, we have a, a very good answer. Um, you mentioned to me on the phone, um, and um, I can't remember. Maybe you explored this in the book as well. But you mentioned to me on the phone that there there is some degree of variation among professional sectors. Um, and some are doing better in this regard than others. Medicine, you said, was one yeah, of them. Yeah, so medicine is really, really interesting. Um, if you look at these, if you will, sort of dropout rates that I talked about earlier, medicine has a lower dropout rate of women. So it's still, if you, women are 50% of medical school students, if you look at the top ranks of surgeons at Mount Sinai, it's not 50% female. But women stay in medicine. And, and I think there's a co- at much higher rates than they say in just about any other field. I think there's a couple of lessons to be drawn there. Um, the first is, and this is also always a little bit unpopular to say, um, no one goes into medicine by accident. You know, it's eight years of school. It's an incredible amount of money. You don't, go in, you don't become a doctor by accident or even because your parents want you to be. You go into medicine because you have a calling. Whereas I think if you look at law and business, this is the unpopular part, um, there's a lot of smart people who kind of go to law school or business school, not because they're necessarily drawn to it, but it's just kind of what you do after Brown so your parents won't think you're a failure. Um, and, if, and if you do go that route, but you never actually loved the law, 
or business, it's not surprising that when you're working 70 hours a week at a job you never loved to begin with and the other partner's making enough money that at some point you say, not so into this anymore. Whereas medicine, I, I just don't think you get that, that same just sort of personal evolution. But, but in, equally important is that um, women doctors have come up quietly with structures that work. And if there's any doctors in the room, I know there's at least, at least one, um, or if you think of doctors you know, um, many women have larger practices. So rather than having four doctors in the practice, they'll have seven or eight. So you're not on call as often. You can have more flexibility in your hours. Women are also choosing um, subspecialties in medicine that have fixed hours. Emergency room medicine, it always seems a little contradictory, but emergency room medicine has fixed hours. And so you can work nine to five. OBGYN, interestingly, is much harder because you kind of have to be on call when the babies come and they don't care. So um, uh, emergency room medicine, anesthesiology, dermatology, they're, they're subspecialties that have more regular hours. And I think that's really important to point out, and I wish we could find ways to do that in other careers <clears throat> as well. Or at least, and this is again where I become un unpopular, but I think it's important, to let young women know that if they think they do want to have high-powered careers and they think they do want to have partners and children, that they may want to focus on some elements of a career or some paths in a career rather than others, uh, you know, to use sort of the extreme. You know, it's really, really hard to be an investment banker at a top firm without working 70 hours a week and being on a plane. It's very hard to be a McKinsey consultant. And I do know moms who are very successful McKinsey consultants, but it's hard. You're working for a client and you're billing hours, and if they say, I need you in Cleveland, they don't care about your daughter's <coughs> piano recital. And they can't. You know, that, that's just the way the business is structured. Law is another one, and, and I haven't looked at the data as closely as, as I will at some point. Um, corporate law is very tough on women. Again, you're billing hours, you're working for a client, you're working on a team that doesn't have flexibility. Interestingly, judges have fixed hours. Court, as one of my friends, a federal judge, reminds me, courts get out at 4 o'clock. And these are not like lean-out jobs, right? These are really crucial, exciting, high-powered jobs but they have fixed hours. So I was talking recently to you know, a real hotshot young lawyer, and you know, this woman could go any, anywhere she wants, but she was already thinking that she wanted to go kind of the general counsel route or the judge route and not the corporate law route. So I think, you know, again, there's, there's a pushback on this, understandably, because I think people don't want to say to young women, you know, start choosing your career, bearing in mind the children you may have. But I actually think it's important to make it clear to women that you know, if you have some vague idea what you want to do, you should just be aware that some careers are going to be harder than others. And you know, very early in my, in my career, and I don't even know quite how conscious I was of this, but I know I was at least vaguely conscious of this, I wanted to be Secretary of State. And despite my, my kind father pointing out that that really wasn't an entry-level job, um, <laughs> I thought, okay, I'll go in the Foreign Service, and that will you know, that will get me there. Um, that wouldn't have worked either, but that's what, I, that's what I was pretty sure I wanted to do. And then when the time came, I, 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 was, um, I got into the Foreign Service and time came for me to go off to Warsaw as I was supposed to do. Um, I just didn't show up, which I've never done before since in my life. But th there was something in the back of my head that said, you know, this is going to be a career. If you get on that plane to Warsaw, 
it's going to put constraints on your life that will be much more confining than if you sort of stay on an academic track. And I don't see that as giving up, but I do see it as having made, you know, at a young and critical moment in my career, a choice that for me at least was the right one. And it, it certainly enabled me you know, to marry the man I wanted to marry and have the kids I was lucky enough to have because I was in a career where I could juggle more easily than if I had been a political officer in the Foreign Service. So perhaps my generation was um, a little bit advantaged by being part of the struggle because certainly in my mind as I was going through, uh, through college and thinking about graduate school was the, the idea that I wanted to have it all and so I would become a professor because that would give me flexible hours or more flexible hours. And um, though I work very hard, it was a much, much easier path to raise three children as I did than, um, for example, the one I have now. I don't know how, how on earth I would um, have young kids with uh, night and day hours. And um, um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's not so bad having been part of the before picture, perhaps. So um, I want, uh, first of all, to suggest that those of you who have questions start lining up before the two mics uh, in the aisles to my left and to my right. Um, I just want to um, end on, a, on the optimistic note that you end on and um, read the final. Am I allowed to spoil the book? Is yeah, absolutely. It's not a murder mystery, um, so. Okay. It's not a mystery. Yeah. There's a lot of suspense in it, but it's not a mystery. Fifty years from now, Deborah writes, some whiz kid designer will be crafting an advertisement for a new and intoxicating scent. After several prototypes, he or she will stumble upon an equally intoxicating model, a model who captures in an image everything the product is trying to convey. She's female and successful and a mother. On whatever screen future advertisements will be displayed, she grabs you instantly and makes you remember because with her hair must across her face and laugh lines scampering from her eyes, she is perfect in her own funny and flawed way. Her name will be Charlotte, maybe, or Charlene, and this time she'll be real. It's a terrific book if you haven't read it yet. If you don't mind, if you'd say who you are uh, before you ask your question, and I'll begin on the left, and then uh, we'll go to the right. So. David Narens, I have one question. In, in the book, or in general, when people talk about women in the workforce, they're talking about jobs which make money and careers which lead somewhere. But where do you feel that being a mother fits in as a job? Because I don't think there's any job that's tougher. It's a 24-7 job. What you're producing is probably the most important thing that you're ever going to produce. Where do you feel just someone who says, I want to be a mother fits in? I want to be that wife. I want to take care of things. I'm a bright woman. I have other things to contribute. But right now, I want to put 100% of my work into being a mother and a wife. I think it's a great question. And I think it's an important question. Because I think we need to legitimize that choice for the women who are lucky enough to be able to make that choice. You know, most mothers in this country can't afford not to work. So you're entirely right. All of the books in this space are about lucky, rich, white women. Lucky, rich, white, straight women. Um, most women don't have the luxury of choosing whether or not to work. But for those who do have that luxury, I think we totally have to legitimize and celebrate the choice. And I think one of the most unfortunate um, 
aspects of our society right now is the extent to which women judge each other. And anyone who's been on any playground has watched this game play out, right? What do you do? Oh, I stay at home. Oh, oh. So there's this, you know, women, women who work are judging the women who stay at home, and women who stay at home are judging the women who work. And we need to stop doing that. I use uh, the same silly metaphor over and over again here. The beauty of feminism is that it's given women this incredible candy store. We have choices all over the place. But my choices may be different than yours. And none of us can have all the candy in the store. So we need, we need to celebrate the choices and stop comparing and beating each other up. Having said that, though, I do think it's important that women who are making that choice realize that getting back into the workforce is going to be hard. Um, many years ago, a wonderful woman named Sylvia Ann Hewlett wrote a very powerful article in Harvard Business Review about on-ramps and off-ramps. And it's a great idea. It doesn't work. Um, and I was interviewing Sylvia recently, and I said, so how did that on-ramp, off-ramp thing work? And she's like, yeah, it didn't happen. And, and I think that's really important to know because the off-ramps work great. The on-ramps do not. And I think if women choose that, you know, I've had a great career, but now I'm going to stop doing it, that's fine. But they shouldn't be disillusioned or they, they shouldn't be under a false impression that they will be able to step out of their job as an accountant and whiz back in uh, some years hence. So I think as long as they're making the choice knowing that, it's a totally uh, fine choice to make. Okay. We're going to go to our right. Um, I was wondering if you could touch on maternity leave laws in America, um, how kind of we got to where we are now and maybe what we could do about it, and a little bit of background to my question. So I'm a Barnard graduate and then went to medical school. I'm now in my last year of residency. So um, I, I had... You're like the cover of my book. Yeah, your, your book came out right when I had to go back. So, um, so I was given six weeks off with pay. Um, I tried to use the FMLA you know, leave to get my full three months and was you know, kind of... My, my boss was not very nice about that. And then at the same time, I have a friend in Germany having a baby who gets 13 months you know, off pay, some of it full, some of it's not. Um, and I just feel like you know, that would kind of help if we could fix that in America with the struggle we have between you know, going back to work, not going back to work, having kids. So if you could touch on that. Yeah, it's a great question, and good luck to you. <laughs> so this, this is an area without question where the rest of the world, or most, much of the rest of the world, does a much better job than the United States does. Our maternity leaves are too small, they're not well enough financed, and they're almost exclusively uh, for women. So we're just, there's an article that just came out, I think, in yesterday's Atlantic about the slow increase in paternity leaves. Paternity leaves are a great thing, uh, particularly when they're mandatory, um, because that's actually what, what starts to change uh, social patterns. Um, so I think, you know, insofar as this remains a political cause, or, or you know, even a cause within an organization, advocating for longer maternity leaves, you know, three months at, at least, um, is a very powerful thing to do. Uh, one of the reasons, and, and this gets uh, complicated and, and controversial, but one of the reasons maternity leaves in this, in this country are structured the way they are is that they're structured as, as, as medical leaves. Um, so ma ma maternity is a medical condition rather than a, a social condition. And, and so the six weeks is legal because, you know, technically the medical effects of having given birth are over at the end of that six weeks. In other countries, they're not structured medically. And that was a decision that people fighting for this made many years ago, which in retrospect was probably not the right one. The other, the other um, and having, having gone through this with my third child, I can attest, it also um, 
uh, works against people who adopt children. Because I had two children and then adopted my third. Because adoption is not a medical condition, I got zero leave. Yeah, zero, because it was not a medical condition. So at the, at the legal core of our system, I, I think we, we have a problem. Um, but I, I trepidated even saying this, but I think it's very important also for, for families and particularly young women to realize that maternity is not a short-term thing. So even if you imagine the world's most generous maternity leave, you know, two years fully paid maternity leave, what would you get at the end of it? You'd have a two-year-old, right? And so life is not easy. <laughs> so, you know, at some point you kind of have to figure out, and it's hard, how you're going to juggle it, how we all are going to juggle it, because the maternity part doesn't end for at least 18 years. And then they go away and then they come back. And so it's just, you know, you, you kind of have to figure out how to make it work because the maternity leave alone doesn't actually go to the heart of the problem or the heart of the, the issue. It's not a problem. <laughs> yeah. Hi, my name is Janet Mackin, and I'd like to start with thanks and a request to President Spar. First, I have to say I love saying that, President Spar. And might you consider that after Hillary is president for eight years, your kids will be grown, that you could take another job called president. Uh, but my question is really this. I'm at uh, the age. I'll be 65 this month. And yes, I am one of the young in the audience, but as they called, call us now, I'm the young old. Uh, and I'm thinking about retirement. And what I'm feeling with retirement is, am I going to save the world in my retirement, join the Peace Corps or whatever, or am I going to be a stay-at-home grandma? So here I am at retirement age, and I'm dealing with the same issue, deja vu, all over again. And uh, I need a book. Could you put some pressure on somebody <laughs> in my age group to write the book, like beginning to think about leaning out with attitude, uh, <laughs> because I really feel like um, this baby boomer group, we need some help with that. Yeah, it's, you know, I have to say, the, the way the, for those of you who haven't read the book, the way the book operates is I, I work through the, walk through the phases of a woman's life, and I start with girls, and that's where we get into the Barbie stuff, and chapter on body image and sex, which was horrifying to write, um, and then at the very end, there's a chapter on aging, and, and I actually found it the most interesting chapter to write, because it wasn't a topic I had looked at, really, either personally or, or academically. And you know the bad news in that is that I think aging, like many things, falls harder on women than it does on, on men, um, because women, our, our, our images of women are so much about young women. You know, so I, I haven't gone through your the exhibits here, but I imagine that there's more pictures of young women than old women, and probably equal number of old men as young men. Because you know, young men, old men get like distinguished and, and powerful. Old women just get old. Um, or as uh, Diane Sawyer said, in this city, women don't get older, they just get blonder. Um, <laughs> which I think is, is true as well. And, and you know, God bless plastic surgery, because now in this city, it's illegal to have a wrinkle. You know, so far as, as I can tell, they stop you at the bridge. Um, so we, you know, we haven't come up with ways yet to create new models of aging for women, 
And yet, as you totally correctly point out, the baby boomer generation is just determined not to get old, right? We thought we were going to die before we got old, and now we're going, well, maybe not, but how do I stay young forever? And, and you know, I think that's going to be hard for both men and women, but harder for women. The good news here is um, I was just at an event last night with uh, Grace Lee Boggs, a civil rights activist, 98 years old. And you know, she came on stage and she said, I may be old, but I got my marbles. And, and man, she did. You know, and I think you know, she is an extraordinary woman. But, but I think we are starting to see patterns of, and it is what I try and capture in the, the Charlie paragraph you ended with, of incredible, spunky, adventurous women. I will call out my own mother here, who's definitely you know, carved that pattern. We're starting to see women run for office after their kids are out of the house, um, which I think is an incredibly interesting model, because you can run for political office without necessarily having had you know, 20 years of resume building work. Um, and I think that's a really interesting model. We're seeing women get involved in all kinds of, of uh, community causes. Entrepreneurship, um, you know, complicated there because we know the data, women, women go into entrepreneurship at high levels, they have a tougher time getting capital. But that's a fixable problem. So I think there are models out there that are actually really exciting. And, and I think this is what the baby boomer generation, which has been really at the forefront of all of these changes, um, should continue to push for. So go for Just it. a quick um, follow-up for Dr. Mira. Could you consider, when you look at this audience and all the women uh, who all had come here with pocketbooks, somehow putting hooks on the back of the chairs so we could hang our pocketbooks <laughs> there? You've got power. Help us. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Um, yeah, no, I mean, we are, um, you know, we're onto this story. We're very heavily onto this story. So, um, so thank you. Yeah. Um, Thanks so much. I'm Janice Maffei, and I, you know, I agree with, you know, the kind of the great leaps and bounds and the options and choices that are available now for women. Yet, I find myself still sort of disappointed and almost shocked by the images that turn up. Um, and just a couple of recent ones, you know, the Super Bowl. We don't expect to see women on the field, but we do expect when we see the commercials and they talk about. German engineers getting their wings, that at least there'd be one woman that would get her wings during that time. We expect that when we hear about the Monuments Men, and I was very intrigued to read that story in the Times about the Monuments Women, and that it's just really kind of glossed over, and we just, we move on. And so I guess my question is, what are we doing about that? I feel like back in the 60s, we would have called it out in some different way. And I feel like now there's just almost like an acceptance. This is kind of how it is and, and get over it. Yeah, I, I, I think you're exactly right. And that um, the German engineering commercial, I don't know how that got by the bosses. You know, put one woman in, in you know, so it's, you know, you're exactly right. We live in this world and sorry to be depressing, um, if you look at sort of the physical images of women that are, we're all bombarded with, I would argue they've actually gotten worse, considerably worse now than they were in the 60s and 70s. Um, just to give you, you know, two, a couple of examples, pop stars. If you think about who the leading female pop stars, musicians were in the 60s and 70s, they were women like Janis Joplin, mm -hmm. you know, Mama Cass. You know, these were women who were not out there for their physical appearance. Patti Smith. They were, they were women who were out there for their talent. You look at pop stars today, and they're models with no clothes. I mean, no clothes. And, you know, they usually can sing, too. But it's, 
you know, but, but the, men, the men don't have to look like models, they can just sing. And, and so, you know, and this is actually a pretty important sector. And it's a sector that has a huge impact on young girls. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're just seeing women valued for their looks and men valued for kind of anything else. The other um, recent kerfuffle that some of you may have followed was Lena Dunham, yep. sipping into the Barnard Medal last year, um, is one of the most interesting young women out there, certainly one of the most influential. Her, her show, Girls, does portray women in at least a more realistic way, a grittier way. They put her on the cover of Vogue magazine, and they Photoshop her. So even a woman who's known for being real was actually not allowed to be real. And so um, I know it's something, and one of the nice things that's happened to me as a result of this, this book is I've gotten to know a number of the women who run the major magazines in this city, and they're smart women. And I really see them tortured by this issue, that they are the ones putting Photoshopped 17-year-old models on their covers, and yet that is what we're buying. And so they keep selling, and we keep buying, and there's kind of nothing um, to break that, that trend. And I don't know how we fight mm. back at it. There was a, a nice campaign out of the mayor's office, a girls' campaign, where they were just showing real girls on, on various ads around the city. We need more stuff like mm -hmm. that. It won't solve the problem, mm -hmm. but at least yeah. it will give some kind of, of, of counterpoint to it. Uh, my name is Rachel, and um, I'm worried I don't have a question. First of all, I, I love this discussion. I found myself thinking, you know, yes, 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 no, 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 no yes, yes, yes. You know, and not no disagreeing, but no, oh, what are we going to do? Um, and I, I was also thinking about, um, you know, when you had that Charlie commercial, it was in between when you were watching I Dream of Jeannie, which my mother never wanted me to watch, but it was my favorite show, and it's all about, like, a, a slave to yes, a man. Master. you know, That's the big word. Yeah. Um, so I guess my question is, I have a six-year-old daughter, and, it, and it's all about princesses. And I think there's always mixed messages, you know, for women. And now that we have um, so many advances in fertility treatments, and there is a certain amount of planning that can be done, and, and you can have uh, quite a lot of your working years, and then you can have a child. And I wondered, you know, is there any way really to impart the idea of planning on young people. You work with young people who, you know, it's very hard to see the future and see how you can, uh, you can shape it to a certain extent. Okay, so this is, this is a topic that I feel pretty strongly about, and again, somewhat controversially. So my last book, before this book, was on reproductive medicine. It's called The Baby Business. It's a fabulous book, you should all go out and buy it. Um, <laughs> but in that book, I really explore the whole world of assisted reproduction. And on the one hand, it is an incredible world, and it has created you know, millions of babies for families who wouldn't have them otherwise. On the other hand, I think it has created an illusion, and I see this with young women, that we can control everything. And we still haven't gotten Mother Nature to behave here. And I worry a lot, yes, so teach your daughter to plan, teach your daughter to think ahead, but I think we've created too much of an illusion that young women can do everything according to a set of prescribed patterns. And I see this, I really saw this with my female students at, at Harvard Business School, with the, you know, the mindset. And there are women, some of my good friends out there advocating for this, clearly saying, well, I have to make a partner, I have to get tenure, then I'll meet the guy, I've frozen my eggs, I'll buy some sperm. It, it doesn't work that neatly. 
And, and we don't have a lot of young, young women in the audience, but I always feel like I have to say this as, as a political announcement, public service announcement. Women are, dest are designed to have babies between the ages of 17 and 27. Mother nature is not fair. That is when we are at our most fertile. Fertility declines at 35 and it falls off a cliff after that. And so yes, you can freeze your eggs and that might work and you can freeze your embryos and that has a higher possibility of working, but you can't control your fertility. And I think that you know, we have to make sure that young women understand that because I've known way too many people who went out and became partner, got tenure, did whatever, then they couldn't have kids. And then, then they had another area in which they felt like they were failures. So I think, sorry, that was a very long-winded answer to your question, but I think we need to make sure, your daughter's too young, don't tell her any of this yet. Um, <laughs> give her the tea set and let her be happy. Um, <laughs> but I think we need to tell them, you know, here are all the amazing things you can do, you know, but here, here's sort of the reality attached to each, to each one of them. Thank you. Hi. Um, you know, your last answer really features what I'm feeling here this morning. Um, so I'm in the older generation. I came out of Smith College in 74. And um, I had a mother who was on a Fortune 500 board with five children. Wow. Four of them daughters. Um, so I don't fit your paradigm. Yeah. And um, I was very active as a Smithy, of course, in um, the movement, the feminist movement at the time. Um, my shtick all the time was I was the president of the student body at Smith and sat on many panels talking to Smithies of all ages and um, was asked, has your consciousness been raised? And I was, my answer, my stock answer to that question was, I didn't need it. And I, I don't think that I am so unique in the world with, in my age generation. The frustration I'm feeling is that so much of what you've been saying this morning was said to me back right. in the 70s. Yeah. So much of what you're directing towards women were, was directed towards me uh, in those years. And we seem to have failed. The reason I say that is because, um, and I, I think the, the best example of this is during the campaign when Hillary was running, there was so much subliminal sexism directed towards her campaign, towards her, that nobody seemed to recognize. So I have reflected over the years, by the way, you know, I've worked, I have children, I have a 21-year-old daughter, and by the way, I got pregnant at 38 and pregnant again right. at 40. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna get it into a question. <laughs> Quickly, because we have two more I know, people I'm sorry. not very much time. So I'm not fitting your paradigm. I see the mistakes we've made in the past. I've come to the conclusion that instead of women sitting in this audience, it ought to be men. That what we haven't done is directed our frustrations and our messages towards men. Are you doing that? You're a leader. Yeah. Are you talking not to conference rooms filled with women in investment banking, but are you talking to the men? That is, it's a very good question, and um, yes. So I actually, I wrote, I wrote a piece for Harvard Business Review on what men can do to help women succeed. And when I speak, I can't control the audience for rooms like this. Um, when I speak at corporations, I make that clear, that unless a third of the room is male, it's kind of useless. That we'll have fun, we'll have, you know, we'll fetch for a little while, but it's not gonna have any impact. Um, and sadly, I was just at one of the tech companies this past week, um, very young, you know, this is a company whose name you would all know, there was not a single guy in the room. And when I see that, I know there's no hope. You know, unless we get the men in the room. 
um, we're not, we're not going to change things. Okay. Um, quick question. Okay. okay. <laughs> all right. So um, I'm sure all the women in this room know that there's this ridiculous and, and very intense um, pressure right now for us to look very physically attractive. And that's like a huge part of our, you know, our media and, and just everything. So I wanted to know in your research, did you notice any correlation between these pressures and being physically attractive and successful women? Do they have an advantage? Like, how does it play out? Yes, and, and, and it's, a, it's a question that deserves a longer answer than I'll be able to give it. Um, women are still valued for their physical appearance. Not always, not in all sectors, but generally, yes. Men, the only, the only way in this, where there's some equity here, men are valued for being tall. So there, that's the one aspect of men's physicality. And we know, you know, male, uh, it's almost always the taller presidential candidate wins. So there's, there's, some, there, there's some of this that cuts across the sexes. Um, and, you know, sadly, um, one of the things I hear from young women is that the internet has made this worse. Because Facebook and Pinterest, and we're all curating our lives. And we never curate ourselves looking ugly. You know, we, and so that, that's, that's only upped the ante here. And again, it's like the, my, you know, my response to the earlier question about the media. We all kind of know this. I don't know how we fight back, but I think at least it's worth commenting upon um, because it, it remains a real stumbling block, a real issue um, for women. Quick question? It's a quick comment um, on Barbie. Fifty years ago, my daughter wanted nothing more than a Barbie doll, <clears throat> and I thought they were disgusting. And so she had her sixth birthday, and her little friend Rhonda from across the street came and presented her with a sort of Barbie ripoff doll. <clears throat> and Anne picked the doll up, and she said, finally, a doll with boobs. <laughs> <laughs> That's the appeal of Barbie. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Quick question. Thank you. Question, real yes, question. I was interested in the book that you were mentioning that one of the other questioners said about uh, women 60 and older who were trying to make new moves in their lives. Um, and there's two pieces of uh, women in jobs that I think are going on, and not just women in jobs. Um, uh, adjunct professors, PBS just had an excellent show on adjunct professors and the terrible uh, piece. So that's my question, but also I am in the Board of Ed and I am being forced to retire and hopefully the mayor is going to do something about this, but how do we help women who are dealing with these pressures? Uh, they do all their work, they get their diplomas, they, they work hard, they get their tenure, and then boom, they're knocked out, they're so many different pressures that get you out. And I, I think just because I know we're short of time here, I think on the, uh, the mandatory retirement, I mean, that's an issue that's kind of going to cut across genders. It's hitting the baby boom hard. So I think that's one that really is, is ripe for, for political activism. So I think we have time, unfortunately, just for one more question, a quick one. Thank you. Okay, I'll make this very quick because it's more of a comment, but I, do, I would like your thoughts on it. I was a pro-choice feminist for many years, and then I had an abortion, and 10 years after that, I became a very active pro-life feminist. And I was made to feel that there was no room for me in the feminist movement. I would be putting women back 40 years. But, I mean, there, are, there seems to be other battles we can fight, like human sex trafficking, and it's, you know, it's like the woman that wants to work. We don't have to judge her. And I, 
I would like to see more kindness between the pro-choice and the pro-life feminists. I mean, especially given that science has changed so much in the favor of life. So, I mean, do you ever deal with that or talk about I, that? You know, I don't deal with that so much, to be honest. I mean, the way, the way that, that I, I, I use at least or to think about the, the word choice, I think we need to reclaim the word choice you know, as a very important word. It's that word has become so deeply associated with with having abortion. one choice, yeah. Um, and, and I think what I want to do, and it does, it, you know, it does relate back to the earlier question about you know women who choose to be stay-at-home moms. I do think we need to legitimize women's choices right. um, without necessarily judging them. And there is this isn't quite the question you raised, but it's related. You know, I think there is an assumption that <clears throat> all women in politics are going to be liberal Democrats, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's been the norm. But you know, I, I actually think it's good. You know, I don't, I don't like Sarah Palin, um, but I think it's good that there are Sarah Palins out there. That there, there are, that that you know, that women, women can disagree with other women. That we're not all going to have right. the same political opinions mm -hmm. because there's a lot of us and we are diverse. Yeah, or spiritual. Okay. It's not always a political decision. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we've um, we have a request for equal opportunity. So, um, <laughs> we'll one more question. Uh, let me just say that. I am fascinated by this conversation because it's the first forum that I've ever been in where being an investment banker has been holed up as a paragon of virtue and as a goal for anybody. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole class aspect of this, of this conversation, that this is about white women yeah. with a lot of money who have a lot of choices. And so I'm, I'm confused by what the real message you're, you're trying to give to the larger world, if any. One of the problems I have with the conversation is this idea that you said about women falling off the pyramid. A very negative and pejorative statement about what's happening. Uh, perhaps it could be that women look at the choices that they have available to them, which is to be more like men. I mean, let, let's be fair. What the issue is, to rise up in the corporate ladder to be a success, women don't become more like women. Women become more like men. And the idea that women at some point look at these choices, stop it, look at these choices, look at these choices and decide this is all bullshit, I'm out of here. Why is that a negative? All right, this may not have been the best question to end on, but let me, uh, let me, let me try it. That's right. Always a mistake to do that one just, more just, time. Just to take, take a piece of it. I think if I could go the earlier question or raise this point, if women are choosing enthusiastically to stop working, that's great. If women are stopping working because they're miserable and exhausted and they're burned out, which I think is more the norm, um, then that's not so great, especially if those women are stopping, believing that they're stopping temporarily and that they're going to come back in, and then they find themselves at 45 or 50 saying, I have no options left. That those, that, that's, that's not a happy choice, however you, you, you choose to call it. And in terms of women becoming more like men, yes, so long as the workforce remains dominated by men, the women who succeed in those environments will have to behave like men. But as we start to get more women presuming we do, in the workforce, the workforce will change. And I say this, I've been very lucky. I, you know, I spent the first part of my career working at Harvard Business School, which let me assure you was a very male environment, and now work at Barnard College, which let me assure you was a very female environment, and they're different. And the best of all worlds, in my mind, truly is one that is diverse. 
I've tried to bring more men into Barnard, and I've tried to bring more women into Harvard. And I think that's what we should work towards. The, the, the workplace behaves differently. And once we get to a more diverse workforce, women will not have to behave like men in order to succeed. Okay.